0: Hey, Bayview Glen Church, Pastor Mark Clark here, all the way from Vancouver, Canada. We love you guys out in Toronto. Your ministry there is awesome. And such a great honor and privilege to be able to preach these three weeks, The Problem of Jesus series. If you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 16 is where we're gonna be. And I wanna pull out three big principles of discipleship. You know, 269 times in the New Testament, the word disciple is used to describe the followers of Jesus three times only is the phrase Christian use? So we gotta understand discipleship is the paradigm of Christianity in the New Testament. The question is, what does it mean to actually be a disciple? How are we going to do that well? In the modern world, disciple of course is a learner of Jesus, and the question of discipleship is central to all of our lives, because the world is constantly trying to disciple us in its ways. Hey, I want you to worship money and beauty and power and you know and work and success and having a perfect family. All of this is the world trying to disciple you, and so what Christianity is—it's this counter version of discipleship where we've got to get three things right. We have to get, and if you're taking notes, gospel, community and culture are the three ways we're gonna balance how to be true followers of Jesus in the modern world. And All of them come out of this passage in Matthew chapter 16. So look at verse starting up in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, so stop right there, just underline Caesarea Philippi because what we got to understand about Caesarea Philippi, it was a pagan like city, town. So it wasn't like Jesus just hung out with a bunch of religious people all the time and hung out with Christians all the time. He loved to go where the non-Christians were. And I think one of the things that has to be the background of our entire life is the mission that Jesus has given us to actually go to the risky places, to the unsafe places. I think what happens in Christianity is we tend to love the safety. And so we hang out with Christians. We go to Christian conferences. We listen to Christian music. I remember when I first came into the church. So I only came into the church when I was about 18, 19 years old. So I came in from this pagan background, like just living how I wanted to live. And I remember uh, this guy told me this story about, um, they had a soccer league and it was a Christian soccer league. And he was like, hey, do you wanna play for my Christian? And it was like, well, there's real soccer leagues too. We could just go play one of those and not to cast the spirits of that, but he, the whole evangelism strategy was, we're gonna have one non-Christian on the team. And that non-Christian is called the witness player, all right? So one non-Christian, we pray for him. We hope that in the locker room and just the way we play soccer, he comes to know Jesus. So every team had this witness player. So they're playing this game and this guy runs down and he kicks the ball and it totally misses the net. And this guy just gives out the biggest swear word. Like ah, it just echoes through the whole stadium and all the Christians are like stop and they're like, oh. and you just hear this swear word, you know, echoing out cause he's mad and he looks up at the stands and he goes, it's okay, I'm the witness player. All right? Like the guy knows that like, this can't be the strategy of Christianity to reach people. So what tends to happen is we tend to do, we tend to play it safe. Right, And so here's Jesus doing risky things. He's going to the places that are going to, if God doesn't show up, things aren't gonna look good kind of risk. And that's Christianity. If you're not scared, then I'm not sure you're following Jesus that closely. So here we are in Canada, Vancouver, 2010, no idea what I'm doing. We plant this church. We're like, I'm terrified right now. If God doesn't show up, I don't know what's gonna happen. It was risky. And over and over again in life, Jesus calls us to actually take risks in our life. A few years later, we started these things called cinema sites. And we were like, hey, we're gonna gather people in movie theaters and we're gonna put a whole church service on the screen. And the worship's gonna be video, the preaching's gonna be video, there's gonna be no live people in the room. And every leader, I can tell you, to the person said, this idea will not work. No one's gonna wanna go into a movie theater and watch this. I, I said, I don't know. The Lord struck me with this crazy idea one day when I was watching a nonsense kids movie in a movie theater with my, I was like trolls or something, You know, no offense to those of you who like trolls. So, and I'm sitting there watching this movie, like just daydreaming. I'm like, what if we put people in this movie theater and put, all, and everyone's like, this won't work. And before COVID hit, we had like, I think 800 of our people across five or six sites that were in sites like that, cinema sites. And so it was risky. And the question for your life is, are you willing to do the kinds of things God's calling you to do even when other people are saying, this doesn't make sense. Just go along with the crowd. This is too risky. This is the call of Jesus in your life. And what tends to happen in Christianity is we tend to attract people who like safety, even in ministry. Like how many job interviews have I done with people like on Zoom or whatever, and the person, I'm like, okay, you're gonna be a pastor. Like, are you gonna lead and oh yeah. Okay, what's your greatest gift? Well, I like journeying with people. What do you mean? Well, I like going out for coffee and sitting with my Bible. I just kind of journey with people and it's like, You're gonna work at it. Like, I can't pay you to be a Christian, right? Like, literally, that's what every Christian should be doing: journeying with people, discipling people. I need you to actually be in ministry, in leadership, be willing to take the arrows and take the criticism, and it's gonna be harder. And so, the reality is, I think we tend to attract people toward safe, suburban, normal life. And here's Jesus saying, this is a calling that's gonna be risky. It's gonna put you in the dangerous places. Are you willing to do it in your life at all? Are you willing to do the things that God is calling you to do? So here's the first principle then. And he asks his disciples, verse 13, who do people say that I am? And they say, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said, who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So the first thing we gotta understand is how we're going to be disciples in the world and accomplish the mission Jesus has us on is we have to get the identity Of Christ, He says, you are the Christ, like the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who is going to go to the cross and die for sin and rise from death. We gotta get the gospel right in our life first, because if we don't have the gospel right, then what we're going to do is do religion in our life, even if we're already Christians. And so the gospel is is not a generic message about God in general. That's not what we're talking about. That's the Bette Midler version of God. Some of you are watching this, you're trying to figure out what is Christianity about? It's not about a generic spirituality, vague ideas. You know, the Bette Midler, like from a distance, he knows. That kind of like, I'm far from you, God. And I made you and spun the world and hopefully you can figure it out. That's not what we're calling people to. We're calling people and you to an explicit understanding about the person and work of Jesus who is God and became a human being and lived a perfect life in your place, died on a cross for your sin, taking on the wrath of God as a substitute, as a sacrifice of atonement for your sin, bridging the gap, rising from death to give you eternal life and to give you power in that life. That's the message of Christianity, which is different than, hey, what would Jesus do? Right, because what would Jesus do I did young adult ministry for six years and that would crush the young adults because they knew what Jesus wanted them to do, but they couldn't do it because Jesus is Jesus. And that's where we get this wrong is we constantly kind of like, like what did I need as a 17 year old kid doing whatever I wanted to do in my life? Everything a 17 year old kid who doesn't have Jesus in their life, I was into it. Jesus comes into my life. The beautiful thing about the gospel, Romans one says, it's the power of God unto salvation. That word power is the Greek word dynamis, where we get dynamite. The the gospel doesn't just shear off the front of a mountain. It gets inside and it blows the mountain up from the inside. See, here's what the gospel does that's different than religion. Religion changes what you do. The gospel changes what you want to do, what you take affection in. And this is why it has to be Jesus. It's not just, can you believe in God? Can you believe in God? That's wonderful. It's the person and the work of Jesus. And this changes everything about our life. It changes the way we we read the Bible, right? Some of you like you do your morning devotions and you're reading the Bible and here's part of the problem. You read it as if like, yay, I'm Jesus in the story, right? Have you ever like, when you're reading through the gospels and Jesus is hanging out with the lepers and the prostitute, Who are you in that story often? You're Jesus, right? You're like, oh my, all my leper friends, they need me in their life. No, no, you're the leper, right? You're the prostitute in the story. You're the one who cheats on Jesus every day and you need Jesus to be Jesus for you. When you're reading the David and Goliath story, it's not a story about how you know you can be David too, and don't worry about it, and you can slay the giants in your life if you just look inside and follow these nine principles. No, no, no. When you're reading that story, what is that story about? Who are you? You're not David, you're the scared Israelites hiding up in the forest while one representative Israelite goes down and fights a battle for you and then imputes the victory of that battle to you, even though you did nothing. That's how you read the Bible, right? You read the Noah story. We love that story. It's fascinating. We love that story so much, especially in kids ministry. Cause it's like, it's about God drowning everybody, right? <laughs> like it's kind of crazy. Like, oh, daddy, I love these tigers. And it's like, well, only two survive. It's kind of like the weird story about animals and death and all. But what is that story about? Oh, be like Noah, be like Noah. No, you know what's fascinating about that story? At the end of it, God of course puts his rainbow up in the sky. And in the Hebrew, the word for rainbow is actually like a bow, like like a war bow, like a bow and arrow. And what he does is he hangs it, but think of that symbolism. He hangs a war bow because he's done judging the world and now he hangs it and it's now pointing up into the heart of heaven, symbolizing that one day God himself will take his own wrath in order to save us. I'm not gonna judge you again. I'm not gonna flood you again until I come and flood myself, until I come and take on the wrath that you deserve. That's what I mean by, we got to understand that the entire biblical story is about Jesus. He's the hero of the story. And this is where we got to understand the beauty of the gospel that then therefore it's not based on your performance for him. It's based on his performance for you. And some of you in this moment, you need to preach the gospel to yourself because you, you don't really believe that right now. You're living in shame and guilt of mistakes and sins that you have done in the past And your point and appointment of hearing and watching this today is that Jesus is saying to you, because of what I've done, you're washed clean, man, because of what I've done, not because of what you've done. If it's based on you, you're never gonna be able to earn it. And you're always gonna walk in the shame and guilt because you'll always fail. One of the worst days of my life was the day I was a young pastor and, Long story, but I ended up telling a woman that her husband was dead and I had the wrong guy, right? Like, can you imagine what that's like? She actually fainted into my arms because it was so absurd that her husband would be dead because he's perfectly healthy. And I went into the hospital, it's a lot, I got the wrong bed. and They said, hey, we're calling his wife right now cause he's just passed away. And if you're taking any notes about how to do ministry Uh, when someone says he's passed away, um, say who? All right, (laughs) because I failed to do that. What's his name? Spell it, show me a picture. What's his sin card number? Like I didn't do any of that. I just went, oh, must be the guy I'm thinking of. Went home, told his wife, it was a disaster. Anyway, so can you imagine what Satan did in whispering to me about that failure? I was six months away from planting our church. And he said, don't plant Village Church because the amount of people you're gonna hurt, you're a failure, man. Like you're dressing up, you're playing, you're playing grandpa here. You're dressing up in your daddy's clothes. You think you're mature, but you're a joke. And how often I needed to preach the gospel to myself. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You realize that when the father declares that down on Jesus, it's in his baptism. He hasn't even done anything yet. He hasn't healed anybody. He hasn't preached a sermon. He hasn't hasn't, uh, walked on water. He hasn't fed 5,000. You are my beloved son. And I needed to hear that message because it's not based on what I can perform for you, Lord, and how I'm gonna do my job as a pastor. Well, it's based on the performance of Jesus for you. That's the only freedom. And some of you are living in the guilt of trying to do better, trying to do better. Here's one of the great toxicities of our culture and our time. And it's working on your soul right now. It's the toxicity of comparison, comparison, destroys contentment and the gospel is the only solution to you running in your own identity versus looking at other people trying to be them. How many marriage counseling appointments have I had where I've sat in front of the couple and I hear the husband say, you know, I was scrolling Instagram the other day and I noticed like Sarah's, looking really good. And you know, I I don't know. Like, I don't know if you can keep up, but like she's looking good. And it seems like, you know, maybe, and then, and then the wife goes, oh really? Sarah's looking good, is she? Well, here's what I noticed. Tony, is, seems to be making a lot more money than you do. You see, they've gone on their trip to Hawaii. I think twice this year. When's the last time we went to Hawaii? Maybe you should get a second job. I think Tony looks nice. And all of a sudden, you have two people comparing to the outside world instead of doing what the book of Genesis says, which is Adam and Eve. I mean, this is a beautiful thing. I was listening to this guy explain this one time. Adam and Eve are in the garden and there's no other humans around. I mean, to Adam's eye, it's it's Eve as only compared to Eve. Like it's either Eve or Rhino, right? Like that's that's the option. So. That's when you get married, that's your estimate of of beauty and love and joy. It's not other women around. It's not other men around. Comparison destroys contentment. You're never gonna be happy. What's the solution to comparison? The addiction we have to constantly be looking at the next thing. It's to understand your identity in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you are beloved because of what Jesus has done for you versus what you can do for yourself. You're now empowered in the spirit to do that thing. Question is, are you gonna do it? Because what's killing you is trying to earn it. Religion, be David, be like Moses, be like Abraham. No, Jesus Christ was perfect because you can't be. You can't climb your way up to heaven. So he came down the mountain to save you. And sometimes it means saving you from yourself. So how often we get so close to this reality though. Some of you watching this, many of you watching this are Christians and you think, well, I've got the gospel, but I'm not, I, sometimes I think when I talk to Christians, like they're hovering around it, but they don't, they don't actually have it zoned in. They, they sound like they do, but they don't really believe it. It's like, I've been preaching at our church for 11 years now. And every Sunday I say the same thing pretty well. It's about the gospel of Jesus. It's about the death of Jesus. It's about the resurrection. It's not about you and, and your performance and what you do and how good were you And I get to the door and I'm shaking those. hell. oh, thank you, pastor. I'm gonna try to be a better person. Wah! Cause I know that saves me, and that's why God loves me. Does anyone listening? What's happening? Adventure and missing the point. It's like my uh, my daughter years ago. We went to um, Disneyland, and uh, we my, she went up to a ride, and she said, "Dad, can you can you like we got to get in this ride, but it's a two hour and forty five minute wait." And I'm like, "Oh well, that's too bad." And then I heard this little voice in my head like man, you know, you should be a good role model to your daughter. You should do this because one day she's gonna be a parent. She's gonna have to sacrifice for her kids. It's gonna be a good example. So I'm like, okay, honey, you know what I'll do? I will, I will stand in this line and then I'll text your mom when the line's done and you can come join me. Oh, daddy, hugs, hugs, hugs. So she takes off two hours and 45 minutes. I'm sitting there in a line, like, 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 like I'm like, what is going on right now? My phone dies. You know, so I'm sitting there like it's the eighties, like just, you know, looking around at people like a crazy person, you know, just, everyone's whatever. And so finally two hours, 45 minutes later, I'm like, I'm gonna run. And finally she comes out of nowhere. We didn't text us. Yeah, the phone died. Okay, I'm here, daddy. And I, she gets in line. This is this great moment where I can you know, teach her this lesson. I said, honey, you know why I did this? Because one day you're gonna have kids and you're gonna have to make sacrifices like this. And she looks right at me and without missing a beat, just goes, no, I won't, my husband will. What? Who teaches this stuff this young? What are we talking about? She already knows. Adventure and missing the point. You try to make something clear, people misunderstand it. That's why you start with the gospel. And you reiterate the gospel and you never move past the gospel. As Timothy Keller said, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z's. It's for your whole life, that's what you need. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus on your behalf. And some people say, yeah, but that won't work anymore. The church needs to, you know, it needs to entertain people. It needs to ride around. It needs to give them anything but the gospel because they're bored of that. No, no, no. What we've seen is that Romans one holds true. That's the power. The power is actually affecting the marriages and the addicts and the people who don't know Jesus and people from other religions and are coming to know Jesus. We did a, uh, a, uh, an event called Church in the Park. So what it is, it's, it's our church service in a park. All right? so, so all our creatives got together and spent three weeks coming up with that name. So it's fantastic, Church in the Park, all right? So we do Church in the Park, 5,000 people in a field, preaching about Jesus, talking about Jesus. And what happens? This guy is sitting over here and he's got this fishing rod and he's fishing in this pond, doing his thing. And I'm like, what? some guy comes up to me later. He's like, man, I started this conversation with this guy. And I said, what was he doing with the fishing rod? He's like, well, he's sitting there fishing. And I walked up to him. I said, hey, how's it going? He's like, oh, it's cool. I'm just fishing. And then I started talking to him and I got into his story and I realized the guy looked at me and he said, you know what? There's no fish in this pond. I know that. I just went home and got my fishing rod because I wanted a good excuse to stand here and listen to what this guy had to say from the stage because I wanna know God too. Guys, in that moment, you gotta understand, people are still hungry for God, even though we live in a post-Christian culture. The harvest is ripe. Jesus says in John four, it's the workers that are few. It's the Canadians going, okay, even though we live in a post-Christian culture, even though we live in a culture that doesn't love Christianity, even though we live in a country right now that's putting pastors in prison for having church services, like doing, even though that's the moment, people are still hungry underneath it all. There's this spirituality that's bubbling for answers and the person and the work, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the answer to all the questions. So then once we get the gospel straight, you are the Christ, verse 16, son of the living God. Jesus answers back and said, blessed are you. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, verse 17, but my father in heaven, verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. Now here's the second thing we got to balance out right, community. There's no version of Christianity that's you just living this thing out on your own. And here's what Jesus says. You are Peter and on this rock, I will build what? My church, underline that. I'm gonna build not just individual people, but a church, a, a, a community of people, because that's where the power is. And we've forgotten that in our age of individualism where self-actualization and self-expression has become the top priority of our culture. We forget that there's a communal part to Christianity wherein lies the power. It's not your pastors that are supposed to be doing the work of ministry. It's you, you're the church. Look at what Jesus says in verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, right? So often we in Christianity, we're like, we don't want the keys. Jesus, take them back. And he's like, I'm giving them to you. You're the ones. People aren't just supposed to come to Jesus at, at nine and 11 on a Sunday in a church building. They're supposed to come to Jesus at, on a Wednesday at 4 p.m. in your living room. We've baptized close to 2000 people over the last 11 years. And you know, every time we do it, every time we'll baptize 20 or 90 or 40, whatever, every Sunday we show a video and I say, we baptized 60 people and everyone applauds. And then when that applaud goes down, I look at them and I say the same thing. How many of those people got baptized last week because of you? And it's convicting because we want the pastors to do it. That's not where the power is, guys. It's when, the, it's when the church, the apostolic gene, as one writer has called it, comes alive in the body of Christ that the mission gets accomplished. It's, you know, years ago, they, uh, they uh, went into China and uh, the Chinese government said, we want all the Christians and the missionaries gone. And they estimated that there was maybe a million or so Christians at the time. They put up what's called the bamboo curtain, kicked out all the Christians, nationalized all the buildings, put all the pastors in prison and 50 years went by. Bamboo curtain came down, Westerners went in, said, oh my goodness, Christianity is gonna be completely dead in China. And you know what the reality was? There was an estimated 40 to 60 million Christians in China at the time. How does that happen? It's because, listen to me, it's because they nationalized the buildings. It's because they put the pastors in prison. It's because they killed the missionaries. Then the church had to come alive and do the work. The church had to say, we are now on mission ourselves. Forget our leaders, this is us. This is why later in in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 18, when he's describing, you you probably know the passage where he's talking about kind of church discipline. And he's like, hey, if your brother sins, I need you to go talk to him and I need you to call him out for his sin. If he doesn't repent, I need you to take two witnesses with you. Go back, knock on his door. Hey, Tom, stop cheating on your wife. Hey guys, get out of here. What are you supposed to do then? Then you're supposed to go tell it to the church. Then you're supposed to, here's what he never says. I need you to go get the elders. It's not in the passage because it's you. My church comes to me, they're like, hey, can you come meet with my buddy? No, I'm busy. I got three daughters to raise, bro. I want them to love Jesus. I want them to love the church. You do it. And this is the beauty the, 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 the image one writer gives, which our church loves and grabs a hold of, and it's part of the DNA of everything Village Church is there's an image of two kinds of boats. On the one hand, there is a cruise liner. And many of you have gone on cruises before and you know what they're like. You sit in a cruise liner, you get all these people in these suits to serve you as you sit and you get tanned. You order drinks and food and you do nothing. And then the other kind of boat is a battleship. And everybody on a battleship knows exactly what their role is, where they're supposed to be standing, what their duty is, And the one writer gives this image and he says, the church is a battleship, not a cruise liner. The question for you in your life is, do you know what your place is on that ship? Do you know your gifting, your passion, your calling, what you're supposed to be doing rather than being a non-contributing zero who just takes and takes and takes and never steps up? with their time, with their money, with their gifting to take the church and have it be on mission in the world for the 15 minutes we have on this planet. It's the battleship. This is what Jesus is trying to do. This is why he says, look at, verse, um, look at verse 18, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. How? Because the church is moving forward. The church is actually on mission. The church is doing the thing the church is called to do. Now, here's why we aren't that good at this. Because we tend to preach Christianity as if it's about Christ likeness, as if that's the most important thing. And so we end up being people who are just trying to religiously kind of check boxes off and it never gets into our soul to become the kinds of people who will actually change the world, which is this. There's a distinction. Christ likeness is a beautiful thing, but you gotta understand something. Christ likeness is not the sermon you need preached to you. I can tell you to be holy. You already know that. I wanna answer a different question for you. How? Gordon T. Smith says this, the heart and soul of the Christian existence is not ultimately about being Christ-like. It is rather, listen to this, that we be united with Christ. So much contemporary rejection on the Christian, reflection on the Christian life speaks of discipleship as becoming more and more like Jesus. This is problematic because Christ likeness is derivative of something else it's downstream from something else namely union with Christ and to pursue that on its own actually distracts us from the true goal of the Christian life if all you pursue is Christ likeness you're never going to get it because it is a byproduct of union with Jesus that's why John 15 abide with me be close to me remain in me get near me And when you're near me and the proximity happens, C.S. Lewis gives that image of, if you stand near the fountain, what can you do but become soaking wet? But if you run away from it, you're gonna get dry and shrivel. What are you focusing on? How do we do that? We do it, Communally, You let other people call you out and say, what about this sin? What about this gifting? What about this calling? What about this encouragement? That's how we do it. It starts to change you from the inside. It starts to change. Because here's the thing. In order to be close to Jesus, you got to do what these guys did, which is actually like him. Respect him. Treasure him. Not just have faith in him. Do you... So a couple years ago, I spoke at this, uh, at this uh, apologetics conference in the US and they wanted me to do 50 minutes on why the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. So I did all the arguments, historically, this, that, whatever. When I got to the end and people are like, woohoo, yes, the resurrection actually happened. I'm like, yes, it did. And do you believe it? Yes. And then I stopped and I went, and so does Satan. Because he was there. He knows more than you that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, but it doesn't save him. Why? Because he doesn't treasure it above everything else in the universe. See, I can ask you whether you have faith in Jesus. The question is, do you love him? I'm gonna talk a little bit more about that next week. The last thing then, we got the gospel, we got community. The last thing that we got to realize is this results in a connection to culture, meaning the church isn't to run away from the world. You are in the world, but not of it. The kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The church's job is not to run away from the world, it's to change it, it's to reform it, it's to redeem it. That's why Jesus prays in John 17, Lord, I, I pray not that you take them out of the world, that you just protect them from the evil one. We got whole theologies that are all about leaving the world. Let's get out of here. Jesus goes, that's not my prayer, stay in it. Because the gates of hell need to be overthrown guys. The gates of hell, which are systemic, which are local, which are personal, which are individual, that we would see lives actually change because people are lost. And how we reach them is we reach their Hearts and we reach their minds. Oftentimes the church goes for the sentimental. It tries to change culture by just appealing to the sentimental. How you feel versus what you think. So that's why the church has tended to become anti-intellectual. We're not engaging people in science and philosophy and we're just, hey, singing. You know, I remember when I first came to the church, I'm like, "I, I didn't know I was here to date Jesus. That's what half the songs sound like. Jesus ain't my boyfriend. He's my Lord. He's my master. And how are the gates of hell going to be overthrown that when we, when we hold that message out to people and we say, he wants your heart, he wants your affections because that's the most powerful part about you. And he also wants your mind because as one writer said years ago, if you look at all the problems of the Western world, the problem of the family and institutions, and all the difficulties, it's partly because Christianity grabbed the heart of people and it left their mind. And then Charles Malick who wrote about it says, if all you do is grab the heart of the Western world and you don't engage their mind, you might realize you've lost the world. And so we gotta understand those of you watching this, you might not even be Christians. You might go, I'm an atheist, I'm an agnostic, I'm a, I'm a Buddhist of another religion. Listen, Christianity is the best idea in the marketplace of ideas. Historically, from a literary, philosophical, psychological perspective, Christianity holds up. And then it also grabs your heart. Because not only is it true, it brings an awe and a kind of courage to your life that you never would have got anywhere else. Can I tell you what the center of that is? It's the little phrase in verse 16, and I'll leave you with this. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ son of thee. If you got a pen or a pencil, underline the word living God. You know how your mind and your heart are gonna soar to change culture. And I'm talking about reforming the way family is done, finances are done, ethics are done, media is done so that the world gets changed downstream. You know how that gets done? It's when we actually believe that last phrase, that God is not dead. He is a living God. Like he still moves. He still speaks. He still acts. He still does miracles. He still calls people. He still, does, he still saves people. He does these amazing things. That's not ancient history. That's not 2000 years ago in a Bible story. It's now. 2021, Canada, living God moves, speaks, acts. If you doubt it, let me, I'll leave you with this story. Uh, I remember a a few years ago, my wife and I were going to speak up in Whistler, which is a couple hours north of Vancouver. And we're speaking at a a marriage conference. We're in the car, we're driving up. She said, what do you wanna speak about? And I'm like, oh honey, don't worry about it. I've I've put together a whole lot of content because it's what I do. You just chime in every once in a while. All right, well guys, you can imagine how that conversation went, all right? I don't know if this has happened to you or whether it's just my marriage, but she just turns out the window and just ignores me. Just goes quiet and I'm driving. I'm like, uh-oh. I'm like, what's wrong? She's like, no, it's fine. I'll just chime in once in a while. And she, I'm like, oh my goodness, two hours. It's gonna be dead silent. I'm going to speak at a marriage retreat tonight. My marriage gotta be perfect. What are we doing? So she'd give me silent treatment for half hour on the way up. I'm like, oh no. So, about half hour in, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna do something I haven't done in 10 years. I'm gonna turn on the radio. All right, now now usually I'm, it's from my phone, and you choose the song, and you're podcasting or whatever. I'm talking old school radio. Like for those of you under 30, it's like it's just like these lasers from space. They hit like this this metal bo- thing on your car, and you have no control. You just have to live with whatever's going on, All right, You just scroll around, I mean, it's crazy. It's the radio, all right? So we're driving up, she's giving me silent. We're doing ma- I'm like, oh my goodness, what are we gonna do? And I turn on the radio, first time in a decade. And the song, no joke, that is playing on the radio is the song that we dance to on our wedding night in front of all of our family and friends. Baby, you're all that I want. When you're lying here in my arms, all right, that song, all right, and so I'm like, oh my goodness, this is melting because you know I'm, you know I'm, the Lord's worked on me maybe more than her. I start repenting and realizing, and out of the corner of my eye, I see an arm come out and go boop and shut the radio off, and I'm like, what? And she just keeps staring at the window. I'm like, what is going on with this? See. That was God. If you doubt the existence, what are the chances of the trillions of songs? He's reaching through the radio and saying, you two little kids, I love you. I'm alive. He's the living God, guys. He still moves and acts. You gotta have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to conceive and understand and perceive. What is God doing? He's still speaking and moving and chasing you down even if you don't know him, want him, even though you woke up today and you were not expecting to feel him. He's reaching out through this moment and saying, I'm the living God and I can still save you, change you, meet you where you are. If you'll allow, if you'll, if you'll have the courage to step up and allow me to do so. So Father, I pray, people watching this right now would sense you, the living God. And they would get that first priority very straight. They would actually repent of sin and give their life to you and you would change them even on the spot. And that everything about their priorities, everything about their life, everything about the things they worship in life would gear away from all the present ones and toward you. And then we would not only have faith in you, trust in you, we would treasure you above all things. And you would change not just what we do, but what we want to do by union with you. Jesus, I pray you do that miracle for every person watching this right now. And that a spark would ignite in Toronto, that through this church in this moment, the city would be changed, culture itself would be upended and reformed to the glory of Christ. We know that you can and we ask that you will. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen.